2: Hello and welcome back uh, from your weekends. This will be a show in three parts. I guess all all of our shows are, but three distinct parts. And at the end, I'm going to try to make some time for your phone calls. And and here's what I specifically have in mind. There's a journalist named Amy Siskin who uh, does a thing, uh, sort of a weekly list. And what the list is, there's a notion which has actually been laid out on this show from time to time by various guests that if you're in a different kind of government situation, in other words, if, you've, if you feel as though you've shifted over to a more authoritarian form of government, what you should do and what's historically proven useful is keep track of things that change, write down things that change, because otherwise normality just constantly adjusts and you adjust your ideas of normality and you don't even realize you know, how strange things have gotten. So that's the theory. Um, so Amy Siskin does this and her list for last week had 183 items. <laughs> and so I feel as though at that point the list isn't that useful anymore because making the list, making this detailed list and then having all of us read it has become another way in which reality, the edges of reality, are starting starting to warp and blur. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that, maybe more coherently than I I just did, uh, in our final segment. In our second segment, old friend of the show, Gail Collins of The New York Times, will be back uh, to talk about stuff that happened last week, which is a very big topic all by itself. Uh, And joining us right now, we're very excited, uh, Asha Rangappa, uh, Director of Admissions and Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. And significantly, a former FBI agent is joining us right now. Uh, Asha wrote in the New York, uh, the Washington Post this weekend uh, about, from her perspective, from what a former FBI agent knows. Um, what it looks like uh, when the New York Times reports that President Donald Trump is the focus of attention, or was at least the focus of attention, in an FBI counterintelligence investigation. Uh, So Asha Rangappa, thank you for doing this today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: So um, we should say, so you did work in counterintelligence. And I think most people, when they think about the FBI, they think, yeah, they go around, they ask a lot of questions, and if it turns out you're a a criminal, they arrest you. Um,
0: Right. Most people think of the FBI as kicking down doors and, you know, doing raids and cuffing people and, and taking them. Uh, putting them in jail, and that is definitely um, a big part of what the FBI does. But the counterintelligence side is less well-known, and I think people are learning more about it as this saga unfolds. Um, You know, the, the FBI has the primary mandate to monitor foreign intelligence activity in the United States. So the CIA cannot operate inside the United States. Um, And the NSA is really there just to collect intelligence, signals intelligence from abroad. They're not there to monitor spies inside the United States. So it's the FBI that does that through its counterintelligence division. And what their objective is to do is to identify foreign spies, monitor their activity, and then neutralize them, which is to basically make it so that their operations are not going to come to fruition. And those are the goals on the CI side, which are very different than the criminal side. These cases very rarely see the inside of a courtroom.
2: So we know that um, in a much broader sense, and I think, I think that we think we know that in a much broader sense, the FBI uh, began investigating the notion of Russian interference way before this would have happened. This would have happened, uh, the thing that the New York Times newly reported on Friday night it would have happened uh, sometime in the spring of 2017 or very, very early summer of 2017 after the Comey firing. But, but I think we do know that well before that, Russia, uh, the, the Russian interference idea was the focus of an FBI investigation, correct?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, the way that it works is that there are foreign intelligence services that are on the FBI's radar and they are monitoring their activity. And when they see something that looks like an operation that is being run by that foreign intelligence service, they are going to look into it and to figure out what is this country doing and how are they doing it. So, certainly when they began seeing, you know, blips on uh, social media, fake accounts, uh, potential hacking, um, you know, they're going to start investigating this and it's going to be focused on who are the individuals from Russia? Are these intelligence officers? Are they using assets on the ground? Um, What are they doing? What are their objectives? And that was not necessarily clear from the beginning. You know, I mean, you can imagine if you're on the FBI side and you're seeing this, you're like, what what do they think they're doing? Because it was so brazen. In the course of doing that, they will come across individuals in the United States. They might be For nationals, they might be Americans, who they believe may be working on behalf of the Foreign Intelligence Service. And then they can open cases on those individuals as well. And this might be to get some clarity on what they're doing. Are they being targeted? Are they acting knowingly or unwittingly? Um, And if they are acting wittingly, what what are they doing on behalf of this service? And so that's the goal. There And those can progress and end up using different kinds of techniques depending on the severity of, of the threat. Um, but ultimately, the goal here is to resolve the threat and to make sure that you know what these people are doing on behalf of a foreign power.
2: So one thing about the FBI that I've always sensed is it has lots and lots and lots of procedures uh, that have to be followed. Uh, the FBI doesn't just wing it. Uh, and in my sense also, just even reading about this and trying to learn about this particular situation, is that, you know, there would be a difference between the FBI wondering if some idiot named Colin McEnroe in Connecticut was a foreign asset and wondering if a public official was a foreign asset, convening some kind of investigation with a public official, a really high ranking public official as the focus of attention around that. I assume there's some, some new procedures, some different procedures that have to be followed in that situation.
0: There are, there are many procedures in the FBI. There's many forms and there's many levels of approval. So just to rewind back to the 1970s post Watergate, um, the, the U.S. Congress held some hearings, which were known as the church hearings, after mm-hmm. Frank Church, who was representative in Congress. And these hearings exposed a lot of abuses that the FBI was engaging in under J. Edgar Hoover, um, that they were spying on civil rights uh, activists, that they were spying on politi- on politicians. Um, and this was all a big no-no. So after that, Congress came up, well, well Congress decided not to regulate directly, but The Department of Justice came up with something called the Attorney General Guidelines. And these are the internal rules that will govern investigations. And so they have many different protocols, the uh, strict criteria for when when a case will be open, how you document everything. And this is what has been the procedure that's been followed for the last 40 years. FISA also came out of this, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, how you actually can surveil people within the United States. As a part of the AG guidelines, exactly as you said, Colin, not only is there uh, a requirement that there be a basis to open an investigation, this is called a predicate, Um, and for a counterintelligence investigation, you have to have a reasonable basis to believe that this person may pose a threat to the national security of the United States. But there's an additional hurdle when you are dealing with anything that touches on first amendment activity and again this goes back to the church hearings and you know civil rights activists vietnam war protesters politicians they want to make sure that people don't get investigated because of their beliefs because of what they're saying and so whenever you are dealing with journalists clergy people politicians there is an extra high burden an extra high threshold and several extra layers of approval, um, including, you know, sometimes up to the general counsel of the FBI um, before it goes over to the Department of Justice in order to open that investigation. And you can imagine that for the sitting president of the United States, I think that would be doubled uh, to make sure that, you know, you met some requirement because I think there's also an understanding that this could always see the light of day and Congress and the American public may one day be able to see what what was done
2: right uh, as I understand it there's even a term of art that's fairly recent I think in government called red teaming where sometimes you even sort of put together a, a, another panel to sort of say well what if this is a bad idea um, you know what what could conceivably be, conce- conceivably be wrong with that idea but it seems to me that one, one problem here that might have not even been anticipated by all this procedure is that counterintelligence as i assume it you know you you find some stuff out you uh, you, you learn some important information you produce a report it gets passed up to the next highest person that person looks at it and goes well no this is got to get passed up further uh, that in, in, something like counterintelligence exists to be passed up through agencies and of course sitting at the very top of that would be president trump so you, So what do you do? What would the FBI do if it were investigating somebody who ultimately might be the ultimate recipient of very important
0: counterintelligence? Yes. Well, this is the dilemma and uh, what I wrote about in that Washington Post piece. You're absolutely right. The head of the executive branch is also the chief executive that oversees all of the intelligence agencies. He is the final consumer of the intelligence that's gathered. And the whole point that the FBI monitors all this intelligence activity um, is to combine it with other intelligence that we've gathered from abroad and present it ultimately to the President of the United States or his delegates so that he can shape foreign policy and take other decisions that are in the best interest of the United States. Obviously, this presents a conflict when the target is also the person sitting in the Oval Office. And so it's certainly a delicate investigation. And I think that this helps explain why the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein almost immediately Appointed a special counsel mm-hmm. because I think here it's not that the president would cease to be the consumer, but it it does add a it adds a, an extra layer of independence to the investigation. And it also adds an extra layer of insulation. I mean, the special counsel is there precisely for situations when you might be looking at wrongdoing by the president. I don't know if it was ever. Contemplated when they were written in uh, the early 2000s that this would also it could even involve a counterintelligence investigation, mm-hmm. um, but that's what they're there for, and I think that explains why the special counsel. Uh, came to be so quickly after the firing of James Comey. Right.
2: I mean, the special counsel is a creature of legislation to a certain degree in a way that is somewhat separate from the FBI. So and one would assume, I would assume anyway, that anything that the FBI had produced in whatever short term counterintelligence uh, investigation had been conducted with the president as a focus of attention would not automatically be be shared with Mueller. Right. Mueller's kind of on his own and, and starts from zero.
0: No, Mueller stepped into basically the shoes of the attorney general, oh, okay. um, or in the case, in this case, because the attorney general, Jeff Session, was recused, um, he stepped into essentially the shoes of the, dep- the deputy attorney general, but he is basically becoming um, the, the, person on the, side, on the Department of Justice side who is going to approve all of the things, criminal and counterintelligence, um, that happens in this investigation. Now, there are different authorities and tools that you use on the criminal side and the counterintelligence side. On the criminal side, you have things like search warrants and subpoenas and grand juries, On the counterintelligence side, you have things like national security letters, which are basically secret subpoenas, and you have FISA orders, which are electronic surveillance. you can collect intelligence from... I mean, the purpose here is to collect foreign intelligence. So you can, for example, gather intelligence from from our allies. Uh, you can you can task the CIA to collect evidence, uh, intelligence abroad. And so once they open the case on the president, what they created, because you always... Everything is documented. Everything always goes to a file. This comes back from J. Edgar Hoover, who used to work in the Library of Congress. It's very methodical. So... And opening a case on the president allowed them to have a repository in which to place uh, foreign intelligence that may involve him um, and his relationship with Russia.
2: You know, one of the things that surprised me, and obviously most of what I know about this is gleaned from very, very careful watching of various primetime television shows and movies, <laughs> is—so I always picture an FBI intelligence investigation as, like, digging in and, and finding these all these hidden things, which I think no doubt is the case. But in this case— many of the things that have been cited as kind of trigger points for this investigation are things like President Trump, or then not President Trump, during the campaign saying, if Russia's listening I wish they'd go find Hillary Clinton's missing emails. Uh, And uh, President Trump uh, saying to Lester Holt on television uh, that the Russia investigation was one of his reasons for firing FBI Director James Comey. I I, I don't know why... this must be my own naivete. naivete. Uh, I never really thought, I mean, when he says it so publicly, it feels like it's not some secret plan he's trying to hatch. But maybe that doesn't matter in terms of what amounts to counterintelligence.
0: Yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem very clandestine, does it? Um, And, you know, and I have always said that President Trump would make a terrible spy. Um, He blabs a lot, he goes rogue he's unpredictable i mean if if you have an asset he is not what you want but he is very easy to manipulate um he has many many vulnerabilities from an in, from an intelligence standpoint you know he He is very motivated by money. Um, He is receptive to flattery. Uh, You know, loyalty will go a long way with him. So there is a way. You know, a KGB officer like Putin could very easily manipulate him without having to turn him and say, "Will you commit treason or something like that?" You don't have to spell it out. And most of the time, in intelligence, you don't spell it out. You just lead someone along a path. Now. I think that with regard to many of the public things that you're saying, it's important to remember that just as you said, the FBI was already looking at Russian election interference and their alarm would have been heightened when they look at, when you are looking at what Trump is doing and also now in hindsight, we know what they were collecting behind the scenes. So for example, when Trump says on national television, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you get these emails. That very evening, and we know this from one of Mueller's indictments against 12 GRU military intelligence officers, the GRU tried to hack into um, some email servers uh, of Hillary Clinton and, you know, of, of other Democratic parties. So, you know, there there seems to be something. Could it become a coincidence? Maybe. Um, but that's something that would alarm the, the FBI. Similarly, you know, when... Trump says, I did this because of Russia to Lester Holt. And then we learned that behind the scenes, they had a call from Michael Flynn, his incoming national security advisor, talking to uh, Russia secretly, telling them not to worry about sanctions. And, And Trump later is trying to get the FBI investigation on Flynn dropped. You know, this they're taken together, you think, well, is there some connection here with something promised to Russia um, in, you know, in exchange for, for, you know, is there a quid pro quo that involves sanctions or dropping this investigation? They have to look into that and resolve it and see whether there is a innocent explanation, these are coincidences, or if there is some kind of relationship that is connecting all of these dots together.
2: All right. Uh, well, I think it's important to hear from the other side. Uh, so here is uh, President Trump, uh, I believe this is part of his um, interview with Jeanine Pirro on Fox. I know it's on Fox News anyway, that part I can guarantee. And what happened after I fired him, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok,
3: his lover, Lisa Page, they did it, and you know, they're all gone. Most of those people, many, many people from the top ranks of the FBI, they've all been fired or they had to leave and they're all gone. This is what they were talking about. And obviously nothing was found. And I can tell you this, if you ask the folks in Russia, I've been tougher on Russia than anybody else, any other, probably any other president, period. But certainly the last three or four presidents, modern day presidents, nobody's been as tough as I have from any standpoint.
2: You know, Asha, I'm not necessarily going to ask you to evaluate. (laughs) <laughs> that statement. But, um, but uh, you know, as you say, he does speak in, in a very reckless manner because one of the things that he could conceivably have mounted as a defense or somebody could have mounted it as a defense for him is, hey, I'm a new president. I wanted to have a very new kind of relationship with Russia, a much less adversarial relationship with Russia. I said that kind of during my campaign. And you know what? I, if people didn't want to go along with that, then I fired them. But that's not what he said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. And, you know, I mean, this is the thing is that, <clears throat> quite frankly, had, you know, if, if he were shrewder or understood the Constitution better, the, by virtue of being in the Oval Office, he has some fairly good defenses, which he could use if he just stuck with them. And as you said, one of them could be, I'm the president of the United States. I determine foreign policy. I think we should have a better relationship with Russia. And you know, if, if there is a a case that is impeding my ability to negotiate with foreign leaders, then I have, um, you know, I can get rid of it. And look, there is precedent for that. Um, Jimmy Carter in negotiating the release of hostages in uh, in Iran had uh, claims by private individuals and companies dropped against Iran as a part of the negotiation to have those hostages released. The president does have the power to do things in the service of foreign policy because he has such unfettered discretion in that realm. Unfortunately, you know because the president can't kind of stick to a story and his vanity gets in the way and he wants to get a uh, credit for things and intervenes, you know, he's also bumbled and, and given five different explanations um, for why he does any given one thing. Um, he's also interfered in things like the explanation of the Trump tower meeting and helping to draft a lie that, that becomes a lie. So it's, you know, he has in many ways gotten in his own way. Um, if, you know if i were his attorney i would have taken his phone and you know prohibited him from tweeting and uh, just stuck to you know the article 2 powers line from day one
2: So I just want to ask you one last question. It's kind of based on what you just said there. Um, And it's similar to something that Benjamin Wittes from Lawfare has been saying. That, um, you know, we keep talking about collusion. Collusion is this kind of bar that has to be cleared. Um, But He says, well, no, the obstruction was the collusion. So, I mean, to whatever degree you got in the way of this investigation, you made it hard for the FBI to do its job, uh, that there was already, as we've been saying all along here, an open investigation on on Russian interference dating back to the days of the campaign. That's the collusion. Obstruction is the collusion. What, What do you think of that argument?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there's something to that, but I think it needs to go a step further. The obstruction is the collusion, if there is evidence that there that that Trump had some personal stake in it mm-hmm. um that either he's afraid of, of, of something that Putin may reveal about him Putin has leverage there was some quid pro quo about uh, some ex- election help and and what he was going to do after um there was some financial incentive any of those things in which Trump has um a personal interest to either help or protect help himself self-dealing or protect himself and his family would then make an attempt to or to to help Putin because Putin says, you know, I want my uh, oligarchs to be able to go to the United States. Um you know that that could be uh an evidence of collusion. Um So I think it has to go deeper, like there has to be a corrupt motive, which is what is at the heart of finding that someone obstructed justice, that they had to have done it for an unlawful purpose. Um, And that is, I think, the key. That's what I think what we need to see is what was the nature of the relationship with Trump and Russia? And, you know, was there any coercion or incentives there that could have motivated him to behave in the way that he did?
2: Uh, Asha Rangappa, you are a great guest. I want to take your class, too. Uh, <laughs> director of Admissions and Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs. Former FBI agent who, uh, over the weekend, had a P- an, an op-ed piece about this in The Washington Post. Thanks for being with us.
0: Yes, thank you for having me. All
2: right, and you can continue to be excited because Gail Collins from The New York Times is going to join us on the other side of this break.
0: Open up, Mr. President, it's me,
2: Special Counsel Robert Mueller. What do you want, man? I just want to talk. No collusion. I never said anything about collusion. You're the puppet. I just want to ask you some questions about Russia's influence
3: on the 2016 election.
2: Well, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it wasn't me. All right.
3: Special Counsel got you sweating like crazy.
2: When I say that our uh, next guest is a longtime friend of the show, what I mean is I'm pretty sure she was the first guest who was ever on this show uh, way back in 2009. Gail Collins, author, op-ed columnist for The New York Times. Uh, welcome back.
1: Hey, thank you. Uh,
2: is there anything we need to promote? Any specific books or uh, bobblehead dolls? or?
1: No, uh, book coming out in October, but it's not time.
2: All right. The bobblehead dolls are in boxes of total. The bobblehead dolls are good, though. I would love that. They have them in boxes of total cereal. I've gotten, actually, (laughs) David Brooks and Tom Friedman so far. I I want to collect the whole set. I haven't gotten you yet. um, So we should say, probably just by way of getting cards on the table, that uh, Gail has reserved the right at any time during this interview to slam the table and yell, this is over, and just hang up. Because, that's Gail, that's what people do these days, right?
1: I had no idea. I mean, wow. It's just... What can I say? I mean, Colin, what are we going to do? It's very every day; it's another day. You know,
2: I, I feel like you know, hearing about that White House meeting, I, I found myself thinking, you know, LBJ wouldn't even break up a meeting if he had to poop, right? He just like <laughs> everybody would just have to go in the bathroom okay, with him. Come with that's yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, But now, now we're at that point. So you, your column, your most recent column, is kind of about going down the rabbit hole, uh, which I think is something that I've really been thinking a lot too. Like, you, you always need some point of normalcy to which you can constantly refer, some kind of pole star of, nor- of normalcy. But I, I feel like I don't know what that is anymore.
1: I'm not sure, it's, it's very tough on, I mean, I, I run into people every single day, first who say, they always say, I'm not listening to any of this anymore, I can't read the news, it's all too <laughs> impossible, and then they talk for about 10 minutes about all the news that they just read, so it's, I, I don't really think people are turning out tuning out, although they'd probably like to, some of them, but um, it, it's, it's just, it's very, it's hard, I mean, do, there's no sort of level of shockedness that you can get around. It's very difficult to talk about these things when everybody presumes the president probably doesn't know what he's talking about anyway. It's 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 very strange.
2: Right. I in other words the government shut down because of the wall. Um, I think it's increasingly clear, A, that he didn't know what government did before he shut it down. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, look, the Airline Pilots Association says the shutdown might make it unsafe to fly. The FDA is no longer inspecting food. The National Highway Safety Agency, whatever that thing is, they're not expecting the safety of cars anymore. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. you have to walk to Canada, basically.
1: You know, um, the interesting thing about this, that it's not profound, except that given this guy, it really is, is that the thing we've learned is, He's terrible at making deals. Before that, we discovered he was terrible at firing people. I mean, who knew? He was afraid to fire anybody. Nobody has been fired by Donald Trump in this administration. They all get, like, secret letters or some missionary comes in and tells them to clean out their desk, but he's afraid to, in person, fire people who knew that that those were not the things even i was expecting
2: and so in terms of making deals you're saying you know that there's probably some kind of deal to be made between him and schumer and pelosi but he just can't do it
1: no he's just i mean the the deal would have to involve some way of of saving face and doing something and i mean he just he can't He, he just doesn't know how to do any of this stuff and none of his people none of the republicans have any idea what he's going to do it's not like everybody's, you know, sitting behind him and getting good briefings and feeling all confident that this is all going to work out in the end. They're just kind of all walking around stunned. Well,
2: I I think the thing, Gail, that I occasionally forget, but it came up within the last couple of weeks. I mean, so we mostly know people who, as you say, walk around deploring what's happening. And now it turns out he like broke a government. <laughs> <laughs> like he really broke it, you know. But so and so we're we're you know, issuing our hue and cry, but he 's also hearing perhaps considerably considerably more poignantly people like Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh, right the minute he mm-hmm. seemed like he was easing off the gas on the wall, what happened? They all went nuts right
1: yeah well the the problem here again is that he doesn 't actually have an agenda besides mm-hmm. everything else, so his agenda becomes whatever. You know, he heard on TV that night, or he's, he's very and reasonably so. I mean, absolutely obsessed with his base, uh, which certainly makes good sense at this point since there's nobody else out there who's very sympathetic toward them. But if, you know, if, if and it, it's all sort of uh, propelled through Scott and a couple of, uh, through Fox and a couple of other bloggers, and he just, uh, he's in their thrall. Right. Who knew?
2: Well, I want to mention a couple of more things. I think it's important, one function that we play as journalists is is isolating these little moments of abnormality and at least trying to stick a pin in each one. So <laughs> um, I, I wanted to uh, bring up uh, somebody who... It's hard to make news in this environment, too. It's hard to make news no matter what you do. But uh, S- Representative Steve King from Iowa, a congressman, yeah. uh, he was talking to The Times, uh, and he said at one point, White nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? And then (laughs) later he said, I know, when did that become a bad word, white supremacy? (laughs) It's like almost always, like since forever, basically. Um, And then reflecting on the record number of black people and women in the new Congress, he added, you could look over there and think the Democratic Party is no country for white men. Um, Go ahead, take it away, Gil Collins.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And only only representative, well, maybe there's others probably, but only certainly he would verbalize it, the fact that when you look at Congress, and on the one side you see these men and women from various different groups and age groups and racial groups and ethnic groups all sitting around talking together, working together, and the other side you see all these white guys in suits, middle-aged white guys in suits, and that he thinks that's a good plan is, is sort of amazing in and of itself, completely devoid of everything else. And I found it very interesting that after he went, I mean, the fact that we, we have a story in which he says this stuff out loud to us, although he's such a sort of a dopey guy, I guess it's not that, but that Representative King just went up and told everybody he's a white nationalist, God help us, but Donald Trump claimed he hadn't heard about it, I mean, <laughs>
3: Well, do we terms.
1: really think nobody, I mean, there's many things that Donald Trump hasn't heard about, but, but do we really think that nobody came in and said, oh my God, you won't believe what this guy just said in the New York Times?
2: I, I also, I feel as though, you know, um, this is at least a little bit of a benchmark in the sense that, um, I'll give you an example from my own life. It's from Connecticut, so you'll enjoy that. So the uh, I love Connecticut yeah, stories. I know. Too. So the the uh, current Republican Party chair came up to me on Inauguration Day last week, and uh, he went o- over to me, and I've written some somewhat unflattering things about him. And he said, "You know, when I'm out on the out in the field, meeting with town committees, I always say that my job is to be Darth Vader, so that the candidates can be Luke Skywalker." So when, when he said when you referred to me in print as a Sith lord that actually wasn't all that bad and <laughs> and and it's become difficult to difficult to insult somebody so completely that they you know don't recover some actually little gem out of it, but I know with with King, I noticed this was sufficient to get Joni Ernst and Charles Grassley and a whole bunch of other Republicans to actually denounce him. It's hard to get denounced <laughs> these days right well,
1: it's very hard to get denounced but i I mean but you and it's a weird thing is you're sort of when I was reading all the denunciations, I was thinking, wow, thank God. I mean, obviously Donald Trump's not going to denounce him, but there are people in his party who are prepared to denounce people for announcing they're white nationalists. I mean, I didn't know I'd come that far down, but I was really kind of happy when I saw that.
2: I know. I mean, so we should write that down in pen, though, because that's the way it is today. You know, on January 14th, if you say no more white supremacy, we can't have nice things anymore. Uh, you get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, now, that might not be the case six months from now. So we should we should notice that change anyway. Um, Damn straight. All right. So we live in an age of trigger warnings. Um and uh, so I'm giving you a trigger warning right now. You're going to hear something right now that's going to cause a, sp- a particular physical convulsion in you. Are you prepared? I'm ready. All right. Here we go. B1.
3: Senator, you've had a distinguished career. You served 24 years in the Senate. Uh, you said you didn't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the future of the Democratic Party. And she came back at you and said, who this? <laughs> Yeah, well, okay, kind of a silly reaction. Here, here's my point. I've always believed we only have two major political... She was born in when she was just getting being born, right? <laughs> That's true. 29 yeah. years ago. We, we only have two major political parties in America. They, they, they have to be big tents if uh, they're going to succeed. So, okay, she got elected to Congress. She, she's inside the tent now. But uh, I just disagree. She's, she takes us back to a big spending, big taxing, uh, Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is not going to succeed that way.
2: Okay, I told you you were going to have a convulsive <laughs> reaction. <laughs> is there somebody around to give you a drink of water now, or <laughs> like, fan you with a towel, or something?
3: All
1: I can say I have, I have twice written a column that says everything wrong that's ever happened in this country is due to Joe Lieberman, but that's just
2: me, right. And so he and Ocasio-Cortez have been having this sort of little duel. It's actually been going on since the campaign season. He spotted her early as somebody who was in his cup of tea. Uh, and uh, But I mean, it, it does strike me as kind of amazing that he here he is telling Maria Bartiromo... She's not the kind of Democrat that's going to make the party successful. I don't know. Any thoughts about that?
1: Well, hes I mean, he's, it's been a long time downward spiraling here. I mean, he doesn't, no longer has the power to, say, destroy the health care plan for America all by himself <laughs> the way he did when he was in the Senate. But uh, it's not surprising that he picked sort of soft targets and uh, certainly... Um, Alexandria is one of those right now
2: well is she I mean in a way I think she's the worst possible she might look like a soft target because she tracks pretty far to the left and she's got some you know some Bernie like socialist ideas but I mean anybody who has picked on her so far has gotten you know uh, gotten back more than what they gave.
1: No, and you know, the thing that really impresses me about her, I mean, she's very, very, she's 29, and she had, I mean, she, she knocked out a, a member of the Democratic House leadership who everybody thought would be in there until the end of time, just, you know, swat, swatted him away and won the seat, and now she's the center of the entire world, and everybody wants her opinions about stuff, and she has certainly a lot of opinions, but she... Learns as she goes along. You know, I mean, she says something. She was, you know, I had this big argument with fact checkers about a week ago when she said that. Uh She made some statements about the military budget, which which were just wrong, and they called her on it. And then she said, well, morally it's right, even (laughs) if it's factually wrong, who cares? And then it went on and on, and she went back and forth with the fact-checkers, and they talked about their jobs and what it all meant. And at the end, she said, you know, I understand, I mean, this was wrong, I'm going to do this in a different way from now on. And that is something you have never seen from Joe Lieberman in your entire life.
2: No, uh, Joe Lieberman got four Pinocchios. um... <laughs> I actually don't know what he would do with those four Pinocchios, but it wouldn't be nice. Um, but no, I think that's true. She's in a very unusual position because I've said this many times during the last uh, election campaign, where we had people who didn't know any about, anything about government running for governor. And the problem with that is when you get to be governor, right away you have to know about government because people ask you twenty questions on the first day about what you're going to do about things. But if you usually, if you're elected to Congress, you really can have quite a learning curve. Well, nope.
1: right now you can go on forever. <laughs>
2: anything right really
1: you could be home reading books for the next six months the way <laughs> it looks right now
2: but i mean in general you know they're not going to give you a committee chairmanship your first year they're not going to make you know see you really can very quietly begin to figure out all the things that you don't know but because uh, because of the position that she's taken she's a little she we're going to see her kind of learn in real time i think
1: Yeah, but she's doing it well, and that's really all you can ask of somebody like that. And frankly, I mean, she's right now the center of the universe in many ways because there's no no real spokesperson in the sense that a president is for the party. I mean, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are very good – at their jobs of organizing their party people in the House and Senate and making them do or getting them to do the things they need to have done. But neither one of them has much talent as sort of a national voice for the party that the nation will rally around. So, uh, and, and, there's, and, every, and besides that, you've got 25 people running for the presidency, so you don't have any one voice there or even any five voices trying to articulate what, The Democratic Party is going to stand for, what the next thing should be. So there's this kind of hole in the narrative right now that she's filling up.
2: All right. Well, that's sort of an optimistic note. So we should seize upon it, slam our hands down (laughs) on the table and say, it's over. (laughs) (laughs) It's over, Gail Collins, author and op-ed columnist for The New York Times. But it's not completely over because we want to talk to you again real soon. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a break right now, uh, and then the airwaves belong more or less to you. Legally, they always did belong to you. We could have a conversation about that. But no, I I want to talk a little bit, little bit uh with you. Well, first of all, you can respond to what you've heard so far any way you want. The number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. But in particular, and this is something that's come up on the show in the past. We're going to take a break right now, so you'll have time to call if you want to. But there is this problem that I keep mentioning on the show today, which is how do you track? How do you keep track of the the new normal? Um, there's a way in which every week or two, it seems, from starting with the inauguration of Donald Trump and continuing unto today, where something happens. That's so far outside the norm, so far outside what we would consider normal. For example, the announcement that the FBI had actually opened a counterintelligence investigation into the president to... Check out the question of whether or not he was a foreign asset. Um, that would be like pretty weird if it happened to George W. Bush or Obama or Bill Clinton, or, but it doesn't even seem that weird. It doesn't seem like that shocking a piece of news because we just have shocking pieces of news all the time. So I'm curious to know what you make of that, what you do with that, uh, how you uh, keep track of what you think the United States of America is supposed to be in times when it drifts so far away from that standard. All right, 860-275-7266. And if none of that made any sense to you, just talk about whatever it is you need to get off your chest.
0: I bet Congressman Steve King gets a letter every so often from Stephen King that just says, promise me you'll keep calling yourself Steve, okay? Today's show was produced by Scott Breedy and me, Kion Wolf, because it turns out Betsy Kaplan is a federal agency and is no longer working. Amanda Fish is worried about being poached in several senses of the word. The part of Bill Curry was played by the Fiji water girl, who's currently dating Left Shark. Tomorrow, a show about dust. And now... Back to
2: calling. That's right. Tomorrow uh, we're going to do a show about dust. Now, uh, if you have like a really good memory, like a better memory than we have, and I have to tell you, I mean, we've been on the air for almost 10 years now. We've done a couple thousand shows. I don't know, something like that probably, right? Um, So we don't really (laughs) – sometimes we start thinking about doing a show and we gradually realize we've already done it. Uh, Well, we did a show years ago about dust. But we've decided we can do an entirely new show about dust. We discovered, among other things, that there's a newsletter um, that people receive, you know, one of the sort of those modern, newfangled email newsletters that's a regular newsletter about dust, you know, cosmic dust, things like that. So anyway... um, our tomorrow show will be about dust. All right. So uh, I want to say once again that uh, the lines are wide open right now. We had one call, but we couldn't really make a good connection with that person. So 860-275-7266. I know I don't take calls often enough on this show, but we're doing it right now. There's nobody else scheduled here. So 860-275-7266. And let me add a couple of other sort of talking points to the pile, because, I mean, certainly, you know, as I say, it, we, we've entered a period where things that absolutely are way out of bounds from what we would normally consider normalcy uh, now don't even stand out that much. So there are probably a lot of people who when they heard about the New York Times report on uh, Friday night or Saturday morning that the FBI had actually done a special counterintelligence investigation with President Trump as the focus of of uh, attention in that investigation, uh, inquiring into whether or not he was a foreign agent, whether somehow or other he had been suborned into acting on behalf of Russian interests as opposed to American interests. That just sort of seems like, I don't know, part of this huge, messy, flowing narrative. Uh, And it doesn't seem really weird anymore. I'm going to give you a couple couple of other examples, but I want to make sure you have the phone number if you want to call in about anything. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I would put the wall in that category. Um, so the wall, according to m- recent reports, and I think this is a very these re- recent reports are very believable. The wall started as kind of, of an almost mnemonic technique for then candidate Trump when he was doing these hugely excited rally speeches. So he'd have these rallies, and he spoke pretty much without notes, as you could tell. So his handler, speechwriter, strategist whatever, they came up with the wall as something that would enable him to remember to talk about the importance of immigration policy in his candidacy. Um and <laughs> And well, lo and behold, it got like really big applause. Uh, And and so the more that things get applauded, particularly in the mind of Donald Trump, the more things get, get, get applauded at rallies, the more real they are, the more substantive they are, the more they ought to become. As opposed to some kind of rhetorical touchstone, they ought to become real policy um, so the wall has come from, become has evolved from a fanciful thing to something that was you know a real campaign talking point to a thing which he felt some obligation. Uh, and delight in then forcing into uh, actual federal action, which is why we are where we are right now when the government is shut down, is because he has to have that wall. And, in fact, uh, opposition to the wall uh, seems to be decreasing in public opinion. Uh, Those who oppose the wall are, according to one survey, now down to 54%, down from 63% a year ago, um, which further emboldens Donald Trump to hold his ground, shut down the government uh, and uh, and you know just hang in there until he gets his wall because why shouldn't he I mean if, if I mean to me looking at the wall and if you've ever visited the border I mean you can kind of see how a wall or steel slats or whatever he's talking about it's really kind of I mean even t- topographically it seems like a very Unlikely thing to work, and I I did like the member of Congress uh, who represents that area in in McAllen, Texas, that uh, the president visited last week. Who said it's a fourth-century solution to a 21st-century problem, and we have so many things that we can use technologically right now to uh, make the border safe. Uh, that it, it it seems a shame uh, that we would be talking. Well, it doesn't seem a shame. It seems ludicrous that we would be talking about a while. Okay, now we have, suddenly have a full board of calls and a diminishing amount of time. It always works that way. Here's uh, Michael from Stores. We were trying to get him on the air before. Let's see how his cell is working now. Hi, Michael. Hi, You're-
3: right. Hi, Colin. I I hope it works. Sure. Um, I just wanted to observe that this Trump base, which seems you know like a lunatic fringe is 45 percent of the
0: nation and mm-hmm. so even though it seems like absurdist theater it's it's us it's it's the nation
2: i, I think that's fair and i think that um we often it, it's why last week when he gave his uh his little speech about the wall i was somewhat disheartened to see pelosi and schumer walk out to give the response they are both kind of prototypical coastal elites, particularly in the mind uh, of that Trump base that you're talking about, Michael, um, sure. it probably would have made some sense to have one or more people from the quote unquote American heartland. So from somewhere in the middle of the country to talk about why the wall isn't a good idea, why the government shutdown is a bad idea. Pelosi and Schumer, I know it's, you know, sort of ex officio they can go out there. But you know, I don't think that they resonate very well with the people you're talking about.
0: It's just, you know, whenever I think of how, you know, Trump
3: is a Soviet property or, or whatever, I, I have to remind myself that the plurality of of this nation loves Trump, that, you know, this, this makes sense to somebody,
2: not me. Right. Well, yeah, uh, this is sort of a, uh, well, first of all, thanks for saying that. I won't even elaborate it anymore because I want to see if I can squeeze one or two more calls. Time is short here. Here's Ruth and Sandy Hook. Hi, you're on the air.
3: Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to say I had been expecting the FBI to do this investigation from the day that we saw all the Russians in the Oval Office and no Americans and no, you know, no translation and the baloney with the wall that his people t- put that word up so that it would remind him about immigration, a phony baloney thing. And the Democrats, I agree with you about Pelosi and Schumer, they were horrible, they did us no favor.
2: All right. (laughs) Well, as you may have read over the weekend, too, it now appears that some of President Trump's uh, contacts with Russians uh, as president, I mean, official contacts yeah. with Russian, uh, with Russians, he, he doesn't want the rest of his administration to know what was said. He, they've exactly. gone so far as to retrieve uh, translation transcriptions and stuff like that. So, uh,
3: right. And all those, all those meetings where he wouldn't allow, you know, an American representative in. I mean, the whole thing has been... So- Screaming! I, I haven't understood why the public hasn't, the majority of the public hasn't gone really more crazy about this. It is treason, treason, treason. It really is. <laughs> Eventually, right. he will be caught.
2: <laughs> All right, Ruth. Thanks very much for calling. Now I feel like I don't dare take another call because we only have about a minute left.
3: Next time, call sooner.
2: Uh, I got to train you guys better. But this has been fun, and we've. I, I really love the two guests we have. Of course, I, I'm crazy about uh, Gail Collins. Anyway. Uh, and uh, great to talk to Asha Rangappa, a former FBI agent now teaching at Yale. Uh, we are going to be back, as I said, on uh, Tuesday with a sto- show about dust. And then we got all kinds of other exciting things happening. My
3: children, my children, what do we have that they should want?